God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, trials come in all shapes, forms, and sizes, don't they? I don't know about your family, but uh, uh, our, our family trial has been this uh, bug that's been going around. At last count, out of eight family members, uh, six uh, have been stricken. There are a few left remaining standing. So uh, not to compare my trial, our trials, to the trials that Jesus faced, but just to say trials are part of life. And this Sunday, we're going to be looking at the trial that Jesus faced. Over these next couple of weeks, we're going to encounter a couple of really uh, unsavory characters, infamous characters. Uh, Pontius Pilate is one. Herod is another. And this council is a third. Now, I'm going to refer to the council. There's obviously a group of people, not just one person, but uh, it's another unsavory actor in uh, this this narrative that we're walking through. And each one of these three people, Herod, Pilate, this council, they all have an approach to Jesus. They all have an attitude about Jesus that really is, renders them incapable of encountering him. And the really sobering thing about these narratives is that they had the Lord right in front of them, in their midst, the Messiah, Christ, uh, the giver of life, and they missed it. Uh, they were likely, the Sanhedrin was uh, organized into a semicircle, and it was likely that Jesus was no further than uh, I would be from the first person in the pew, yet that they missed an encounter with the Lord of life. And I want to suggest that that possibility exists for each one of us. We're going to look at, over these next couple of weeks, the council Pilate, uh, Herod, and we're going to see their attitudes and their approach to Jesus that rendered them deaf and rendered them blind to the reality that was right in front of them. Because at the heart of Christian faith is a relationship, uh, a relationship, an encounter with Christ. One church leader said it this way. He said that uh, being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice. Ethical choices are important, so it's not a moral uh, code. Uh, being a Christian is not a lofty ideal, so not some sort of philosophical, uh, not some assent to some philosophical propositions. No, this person says, being a Christian is an encounter with a person which gives life a new horizon and a new decisive decision. And that's what we believe. I believe that Jesus is someone that you can know, someone that you can trust, someone that you can follow, someone who loves you and someone that you can love in return. And that offer is available to all people. It was available to Pilate, Herod, and this council, yet they missed it. So I want to look at the errors they made because I believe the errors that may, they made are in nascent form present in each of us. Now, the, they came to some pretty extreme uh, conclusions. But yet the, the, the attitudes that were present in them, I think are present in each of us. So as we look at these stories, I hope we hear a few little alarm bells thinking, huh, what they thought, what they, how they approached Jesus is not entirely uh, unfamiliar to me. So this week, the council. If you look at your text, you see that the word council is a lowercase c. That's a little misleading. That lowercase c makes it sound like uh, this council is sort of an ad hoc group of religious leaders that were united in their dislike of Christ. That's not the case. The council should be capitalized because it represents an official governing body, a body that is called the Sanhedrin. 
Uh, it may be a church word that at least has some, you, you have some knowledge of that word. What is the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin was, were a group of 70 elders that had responsibility for governing uh, both religious and temporal affairs. Now I have up here a book called The Septuagint. It's great for your bookshelf. It makes you look very intelligent. The Septuagint. Now, what is the Septuagint, class? Any, any ideas? We had an 830 attendee who had it. Okay, I hear mumble. Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was made, you know, think from a little bit of your history. So Jew, uh, Israel was uh, a Roman colony, the language of the land, uh, Greek. So around the year 150, 200 AD, a group, uh, the, this uh, translation was made to make the Old Testament accessible to the common person, right? So here's the question. Why would you name a Old Testament translation the Septuagint? Think of the etymology. Septa is a number, right? Octa means eight. Deca means ten. Septa, seven. All right, well, here's the answer how this, to how this translation became known as the Septuagint, because legend suggests that the Sanhedrin, composed of how many? Seventy members. Each made their own independent translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, and they brought all their translations together, and lo and behold, there was not one discrepancy between the seventy. Now, that is highly, highly unlikely. Translation is more of uh, art than a science, but that, that is the reason why this translation is referred to as a Septuagint. And it also gives you a sense of the capacities and the responsibilities for uh, the, so the Sanhedrin. They were the religious authority. They were the teachers. They were the respected people. They were the elders. They were the people who knew. And I think that is maybe the first little warning of how they missed the person that was right in front of him because they knew it all and they'd seen it all and they, uh, they, they knew the answers. And they had forgotten one of an essential, one quality that is absolutely essential for every follower of Jesus Christ is that every follower of Christ must be a learner. Yes, they were teachers. Being a teacher is great. We need good teachers. But every teacher must be a learner. And, I, and I'm speculating a little bit, but you can imagine that people invested with that type of authority could quickly just shut their ears and no longer take the posture of a learner. And you note that they came into this trial not seeking truth. They didn't come in as learners wanting to figure out the, the truth of the matter, did they? Not at all. They came in with a verdict that just needed a little bit of evidence to support them. And they found it. They knew the conclusion and they just needed a little bit of, a little bit of evidence to support their claim. And I would just suggest that this attitude is not completely unfamiliar to you and me. Uh, that we 
can often come in with an answer and just looking for a little evidence to support our conclusions in biblical matters, uh, regardless that the maintenance of the attitude of a, t of a learner is very, very hard. The Latin word is docility, teachability, and openness to hear from God. Every month I make a habit of reading through the Proverbs. One proverb a day. And one of the recurring themes of the book of Proverbs is listen, my son, listen, my son, listen, my son. Listening is irrespective of age. Every person, regardless of how old, is a learner in front of God. Listening is irrespective of intelligence. No matter what the teaching credentials are, every follower of Christ should have that attitude that we encounter in the, from one of the saints who said, speak, Lord, speak, Lord, because I listen. The first danger of the Sanhedrin is that in their prejudice, they shut their ears. Second danger, a little bit of historical background. Uh, the Sanhedrin, they occupied a pretty tenuous position. You, one could get easily lost in some of the historical uh, intrigue. I wrote a senior paper on this subject, so I had to limit what I'm sharing here. But the sort of the political back and forth between the differing governing bodies in ancient Israel is pretty fascinating. Uh, for instance, so uh, just think historically, you know that uh, Israel was under the authority of Rome. So Pontius Pilate is the Roman authority. And under, uh, under Pontius Pilate, you had, well, Rome employed Jewish, at least nominally, nominally Jewish entities to govern on their behalf. The Sanhedrin being one uh, and Herod being another. So you had uh, both the Sanhedrin and Herod, both nominally Jewish, having responsibility to govern the, Israel, the Jewish people. And it made for a very tenuous relationship for two reasons. One, the Sanhedrin and Herod didn't always get along. Remember Herod the Great? No great hero, uh, but uh, back in the birth of Christ. So Herod the Great ran afoul of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin kicked him out. San, uh, Herod came back to power. You know what he did? 45 out of the 70 members, gone. Another reason for the tenuous existence of the Sanhedrin is because think of the, just the dynamics. So above them, they had the Roman authority. Right? Beneath them, they had a very religious, a very passionate people who didn't love being governed by another, by anybody. Think of the question that was asked to Jesus. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? They were trying to trick Jesus. Why? Because, well, Jewish scruples were offended by paying money to a, a, another source, another, another uh, authority. So say one thing and you offend the Jewish people. Say another thing and you offend the, the power above you. So a very tenuous position for those two reasons. And why is this important for us? Because their tenuous position made them want to, gave them a firm grasp or made them want to grasp the status quo. They didn't like rebel rousers. 
They didn't like troublemakers. They didn't like anyone that would uh, cause a concern, stir up people like Jesus. And think about why, how Jesus was uh, finally the, the charge that led to his crucifixion. It wasn't blasphemy that we find here. It was what? He's an insurrectionist. He's a rebel. He's the king of the Jews, and that's the conviction that eventually led to his crucifixion. You see, the Sanhedrin loved the status quo. They feared change. And I think therein lies a danger for you and me as well, because Jesus is, in fact, a revolutionary. He is a rebel. He is an insurrectionist, absolutely. Not the type that anyone expected, but he led an absolute revolution. I hope it doesn't sound trite to say, but he led a revolution of the heart. A revolution of, a revolution of vulnerability. He led a revolution of vulnerability, saying, blessed are the poor, not the rich. Blessed are those who mourn not those who rejoice. He led a revolution of tenderness. Pray for those who persecute you. When someone strikes one cheek, offer the other. Revolution. He led a revolution of sacrifice, a revolution of weakness. Jesus said, others may lord their authority over you, but not so with you. The first among you must be last. The greatest among you must be a servant. Jesus led a rebellion away from comfort, away from the known. You go into the whole world, make disciples of all nations. Absolutely, Jesus Christ was a revolutionary. He shook things up. He shook things up then, and he shakes things up now. And if we encounter him in a real and powerful way, we will be shaken up. And the problem is we don't like to be shaken up because we like the status quo. We cannot love the status quo. We cannot hold fast to this is who I am and this is who I will always be. We cannot hold fast to this is what I am, what I will always be, where I am, where I will always be. This is the world I am in and this is the world that will always be. And hold fast to someone as revolutionary as Jesus Christ. One church church leader said this. In Revelation, Jesus says that he stands at the door and he knocks. Obviously, this person says, the text refers to his knocking on the outside of the door in order to enter in. But I think about the number of times in which Jesus knocks from within so that we might let him come out. There, Commitment to the status quo made them inflexible to change. And wherever Jesus is, he brings change. So a final warning. We've seen their prejudice, which plugged their ears. We've seen their love of the status quo, which made them inflexible to change. And I think this, both of these contribute to the final insult, which is a reversal of roles. The reversal of roles is stunning and that the judge, Christ, is the accused. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote some 50 to 60 years ago. He wrote an essay 
in which he explained the difficulties of sharing faith with modern men and women. And he wrote this. The factor that makes Christian faith most unintelligible to modern man is the fact that the roles have been reversed. Ancient man viewed himself as a debtor before God. God or gods, he or she or it was up there while we were down here. Lewis writes, early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. Thus, the Christian message was in those days unmistakably good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. We today have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of remedy. The ancient man approached God or gods as an accused person approaches a judge. For the modern man, the role is reversed. He is the judge and God is in the dock. The dock being a British term for on trial. Now, modern man and woman is a quite kindly judge. Lewis continues, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the type of God who permits war, poverty, and disease, then modern man and woman are ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing here is that God is on the dock and man is his judge. Back to our story. Jesus Christ, who the Bible affirms and our creeds emphasize, will one day come to be our judge, is in fact being judged. And I don't think that any of us are above such an attitude. One quick example from my family, from my own uh, rearing as well. As a child, I would ask my parents, why? Why to any propositional statement? Put on your seatbelt, why? Because, why? Because, etc. why, 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 why? And as a parent, I now know why that I find that so infuriating because I want to tell my children why, just trust me, huh? Just trust me. You see, there's a big difference between trust which leads to obedience and understanding which leads to consent. The litany of why is the path that is, desires understanding so that we can consent. Okay, mom, dad, I, I believe your position is reasonable, therefore I acquiesce and consent to your proposal. And that is not terribly foreign to how you and I can approach God. Well, God, given any number of your prepositions about generosity, about vulnerability, about tenderness, I'm willing to entertain it as long as you give me some re good reason that I should actually listen to you. You see, man is the judge and God is in the dock. He is on trial. But that is contrary to how it should be. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Christians, we often approach God, Christ, the scriptures as though we were the authority and they, the Bible, God, were under subject to our interpretation, whereas actually the word of God is our authority and we are under it. We are not its judge, it is our judge. Let me conclude, the Sanhedrin stands for the proposition that you and I could miss the Lord of life standing in our very midst. How, why? Because they forgot the posture of a learner. Their hearts were hard, their ears were plugged. They had prejudged and they could not hear. And the same potential exists for you and me. Let's not be like them. 
Speak, Lord, your servant listens. The Sanhedrin stands for the proposition that their love for the status quo could make them inflexible to change. The problem is that whenever Jesus Christ is truly present, he brings a revolution. He brings change. And finally, the result of those two is that they approach Jesus as if they were the authority and he was on trial. And that is a warning. Let's open our ears to what he has to tell us. Let's open our lives to how he may change, move us. Let's approach him as he is, our teacher. We are his students. He is our father. We are his children. He is our judge. We are not his.